Well, Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for just an absolutely awesome time to get together. I ask, Father, in this last meeting of our theology class, it's been going on for about a year now, I pray, God, that you would take these truths and really work them practically into our daily living. Father, we have touched on creation. We've touched on uh, the sovereignty of God and man's responsibility. We have touched on the gospel of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's accomplished for us by the cross. Father, we have talked about what it means to be godly men and godly women who are disciplined and pursuing Jesus Christ. We've talked about the end times so much, Lord, that we have talked about. And I'm asking, Father, help us now as we synthesize all of this and as we work it out uh, with fear and trembling. Father, we want to follow you. We, we want to stir up what you are doing in this world. We want to proclaim Christ. We want to see this world turned around, revived, brought into right relationship with its God. And I pray, Father, that you would do something powerful and absolutely amazing in this generation, God. And I pray, Father, that as we look to you this evening, as we talk about heaven, uh, give us insight, give us wisdom, and let it be something that we so look forward to every single day of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Um, I want to tell you about a dream I had the other night. So, uh, yeah. So I had this dream, and I, I was brought before St. Peter, right? And... Uh, St. Peter says, oh, so you're a pastor. Well, you know what? We just happen to have a church for you. And the way uh, churches work in heaven is they're always full. And I thought, well, this is great. Okay. So he says, well, just be there before 11. And uh, people are going to start coming start coming in. And you can start right at, you can start preaching right at 11. And, uh, and I guess praise and worship is afterwards or something. I'm not sure. And so quarter, I'm there by 1030. Quarter of 11 People are starting to come in, and it's amazing. They start coming in, and they go right to the front row, okay? And as soon as the front row is full, the front row scoots all the way back, and the rows slide forward. And people start filling up the front row, and then they move in the back, and more people are coming up front. Before you know it, the audience, the church is full. It's 11 o'clock. I start preaching. You start with my introduction, quarter after, preaching, 25 minutes after. I'm really getting into it, okay? And this is exciting. All of a sudden, at 8.30, the podium drops. I disappear through the floor. Next thing I know, I'm standing before St. Peter, and I said, St. Peter, I don't understand this, man. I was was like halfway through my sermon. I was really getting into it, and all of a sudden, it's over? And St. Peter pats me on the back, and he says, Mike, you need to understand it's heaven for them, too. Okay. So anyway, I've gotten over it. You know, I'm I'm just. Yeah, it was just a dream. But I want tonight. I want us to talk about heaven. What heaven's really going to be like? Okay. And most people, honestly, most people think that heaven is going to be a bunch of people, angels sitting on clouds playing harps and just worshiping for all eternity on these clouds. And What I want to do is any kind of misunderstanding about heaven that makes you not long for it, I want to be able to completely dismantle that through God's word and really uh, thinking through the implications of a number of things that we're going to be talking about, okay? So 
I am, you know, Rusty is going to be joining us uh, this evening if he can. So uh, do your very best to pay attention oh. up here because if you pay attention over there, it's going to be distracting. So uh, for both he and I. So not at all, not at all. And so what we're going to do is uh, we're going to look at some scripture passages and we're going to work our way through uh, these things. But here's what I want to do. Most of us, I mean, we're aware that there is heaven. Most people, I was talking with someone uh, today, and, and they were of the understanding uh, some time ago that heaven was just, you know, when you die, we all just go to heaven, and it, it's going to be up there, and then at some point there's going to be a thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, and then everybody that's on the earth again is going to go up to heaven, and they're going to be in this big throne room of God forever and ever worshiping. You know, I'm all for worship, okay? If you're not used to worship, you need to get ready for heaven because heaven is going to be filled with worship. And if it's not something that is of your appetite, God is going to make it your appetite. When I was a kid, I did not like broccoli. How many of you liked broccoli when you were a kid? You like broccoli? How many of you did not like uh, okra when you were a kid? Okay. I didn't like okra a whole lot, but I grew to love it. I grew to love broccoli. Here's what I did. When I when broccoli was served on my plate and I didn't like it, my mom would say, you always have to have a tablespoon. So I would manage to eat one bite and then the rest of the little bits of uh, broccoli, I would shove under the, the chicken bones or shove into the rice or something. And my dad would look over and he managed to move the, the bones and say, Mike, Eat the broccoli. And seriously, as a kid, I would start crying and crying and crying, and, and he would force me to eat it. So uh, that's where I learned, believe it or not, I learned, I acquired, have acquired a taste for broccoli. Broccoli is like one of my favorite vegetables. Fried okra, man, I love fried okra. Anybody like fried okra? Come on, fried okra. Steve, brother, I think in heaven you're going to like fried okra. That's how much God is going to change your taste. But here on earth, there may be some things that are of a spiritual nature that we don't really love a lot. Like some of us, we may not love worship. And, and I pray that by the time you go to be with Jesus, you really love worship. But when we're in heaven, we're going to love worship. We're going to wake up in the morning and we're going to look forward to worship in heaven. But heaven is going to be a lot more than worship, church. It's going to be a lot more than worship. As I read through my Bible, as we look at some passages today, we're going to see some things that uh, I, I believe are really going to challenge us. <clears throat> the problem in the church today and... Uh, this person made this astute observation. He said, you know, hundreds of years ago, they would talk about heaven like all the time. They were so looking forward to it. But in this generation, it seems as if uh, people, they don't talk about it a lot. And if they do, it's it's like blasé. I was talking to someone who was not doing well with the Lord some time ago, months ago. And they looked at me and they said, you know what? I, I just don't know if I'm willing to make all these sacrifices in this Christian life for heaven you know heaven honestly no offense pastor mike but it seems so boring let me read something to you from isaac asimov who was a, a an atheist he said i don't believe in an afterlife so i don't have to spend my whole life fearing hell or fearing heaven even more for whatever the tortures of hell um i think the boredom of heaven would be even worse. Isaac Asimov. Where did he get that idea? Is it from reading the Bible? I'm going to tell you right now, it's not from reading the Bible. 
It's from listening to the church. I think there is a problem in the church. Um, Isaac Asimov lived in the 1900s, didn't he? Um, There's been a problem in the church for some time in which heaven truly seems boring to the church. And I think because of that, we, uh, we look in our wealthy America and we are so caught up. The church is so caught up and deceived by its wealth because heaven, they feel, is going to be boring. So let me live for this world right now and get as much as I can. Um, and I, I'm going to leave that up to the Lord to judge on the day of judgment. But he is wanting us to sacrifice because this life is a drop in the bucket compared to eternity. And eternity is going to be so absolutely exciting, fun, with a capital F-U-N. It is going to be so exhilarating. And I I am looking forward to it. And the best that I can do in imagining what heaven is going to be like based on God's word it, heaven is going to be at least 10 times better than that, at least. So I, I'm ready to have my socks blown off. I'm really looking forward to it. I think we all know um, that Scripture promises that by faith in Jesus Christ we have eternal life. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life, eternal life. That's right. And that life is not just something that lasts forever. Quantitative, it is also qualitative. And we get to experience that qualitative life, at least in part, here on this earth. Just like everything else, we get to experience this relationship, this salvation, this covenant relationship with God in part here on earth and to its fullest extent in the eternal state in heaven. And so, you know... Just dealing with sin uh, and victory over sin. We get to experience it in in part here in heaven in full. Our hope is in part here. It's in full in heaven. Life in part here, full in heaven. Uh, Our redemption in part here, full in, uh, completely full in the eternal state. Um, So we experience much in part, but then we will experience it in full. And we need to understand what that is going to be like, at least in part. Second Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4 says, Second Corinthians 12, 4, and this is not in your notes. Paul said that he experienced, he's talking in third person like it's another person, but we all realize by, you know, after a few verses, Paul's really talking about himself. And he, he says that I knew a man who was caught up into third heaven, and whether it was in the body, I'm not sure, in the spirit, I'm not sure, but he heard things that he was not permitted to tell. Now, I don't think it's just because God got really involved in his prophecy charts as he was walking Paul through his prophecy charts. I don't think that's what it was. I think there was a lot about heaven that is to come and the realities of it that he could not express to us. And as we, as we look through heaven, as we look through the Bible, excuse me, there are certain topics, such as demons and angels, such as heaven itself, such as hell, though these topics are talked about, and, and honestly, many, many verses talk about them. They don't go into detailed description to at least satisfy 
our curiosity. It's it's something that I, I know, and you probably join me, that I look forward to knowing all about uh, heaven, hell, demons, angels, all of these things. Because I, I, I've got a lot of questions, and I can hardly wait to ask them. Um, there were things that Paul was not permitted to tell. So the revealed things, Deuteronomy 29, 29, the revealed things belong to us. Uh, but the, the the secret things belong to the Lord, but the revealed things belong to us and to our children, that they might obey the law of the Lord. So we are, we we have enough, but we have part. And so without, without any more ado, I want us to look at this concept of heaven. Now, I have mentioned to you, um, there are two places in the New Testament that talk about the new heavens and the new earth. We're not going to be looking at the intermediate state. We kind of touched on that a little bit last week. We're going to be looking at the eternal state, heaven come to earth. Now, it does say in Second Peter chapter 3, it says, but in keeping with his promise, so this is something that God has already promised, okay? In keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth the home of righteousness. Now, if you were to look at Isaiah 65, that is where we find that promise. In 66, we find this promise of a new heaven and new earth. So, in keeping with that promise, God is going to bring about the destruction of the old way, the old earth, and it is going to be, he is going to recreate or renew it. Now, we know this, because as we as we search through scriptures, we looked at Matthew um, Matthew nineteen twenty eight um, that spoke of the rebeginnings or the palingenesia, the rebeginnings or the beginnings again, and that is when he was telling his disciples, "You'll experience eternal life, hundred times more than what you've uh, given up here on earth, and you will sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel." And it's in that re-beginnings that this will be happening. That re-beginnings will be the eternal state. Not the, not the intermediate state, but the eternal state. That's the re-beginnings. We also looked at a passage in Acts chapter 3 verse 21 in which he says, he, referring to Jesus, must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. I suggested to you, this is not referring to a thousand year reign of Christ on the earth between his second coming and the judgment, but rather this is talking about Jesus remaining in heaven until he comes back and he restores all things in the new heavens and the new earth, the eternal state. This word restore, if you might remember, is a Greek word that means complete restoration, not partial. And that's one way we know that this isn't referring to a millennium, aside from the many scriptures that we looked at that do not seem to suggest that there is such a time period. But this is referring to a complete restoration. It's used uh, astrologically or astronomically when planets would be in one position in the sky and would rotate all the way around and so that it would appear in the very same place however many days, months, years later in the earth's sky in the same exact position. And so we see, 
we see this this uh, word it, again it does not mean a partial restoration but a full restoration a complete restoration and my question then is if this is the case what does this word restoration what does it have to do with the eternal state if in that eternal state we're sitting on clouds what restoration is that have we ever been sitting on clouds? Have we ever been worshiping God in clouds? Have we ever, have any of you played harps before? Maybe some of you. But this this idea, very good, uh, this idea of restoration has nothing to do with this false image, this false understanding that most Christians have of heaven. This is a restoration. This is a re-beginning of what God originally created. There are a lot of implications of this then. For example, we obviously, uh, the curse, of course, will be lifted. And with the curse lifted, um, we need to realize that, number one, our bodies will not die. The curse is gone. Sin, death is gone. We, our bodies will live forever. Jesus in his glorified body could feel his body. He said, touch me. Thrust your hand in my side, Thomas. He said, I am flesh and bones. That's what he called his resurrection body, flesh and bones. Now, I'm going to take that as a phrase meaning very physical, but not natural. 1 Corinthians 15 says that we sow a natural body we reap a spiritual body. Not that the not that this spiritual body that we have in heaven, the eternal state, is going to be um, something like a ghost. That's not what he means. It's not a spirit body. It's a spiritual body. That is, the imperishable takes or the perishable takes on the imperishable. Okay, are you with me? And so, we need to realize that our bodies. Stephen's going to look like Stephen. Uh, I'm going to look like me. Steve here is going to look, Cole's going to look like Cole. Now, maybe in a different time frame of our life, when we were at our best, I don't know. Um, I, I'm sure that sin has affected all of us genetically, but the truth is we will have a similar appearance. When Lazarus and the rich man were in Hades, uh, the rich man could recognize Lazarus. And so it's it's important for us to realize that we're not going to be like totally changed and not be able to recognize one another, okay? Now, this is going to be important for us to to realize that we ha- there is no curse, no sin, no death. We instead we will enjoy all things. We will be hardwired to enjoy all things. Let me, let me just explore this as I now move in with this resurrection body being restored fully. We are going to be having the image of God restored fully. Colossians chapter three speaks of this, uh, restoration, but in these physical bodies, it is only a partial or incomplete restoration of the image of God. And it it words it this way. It says, um, and 
I'm, I'm kind of jumping halfway through the verse, chapter 3, verse 10, but it says, And have put on the new self or new man, which is being renewed in the knowledge, in the image of its creator. I believe that when we're in the eternal state, the image of God that we were created with will be completely restored. Right now, the image of God is there, but it's marred. It's marred by what? Sin. Sin. That's right. Sin being gone, that image of God will be in its perfection. So what is it then that we are in the image of God concerning? I want you to think about the, the character of God as there is the character of man overlaps. Um, there is a quest for knowledge, for example. There is something innate within us that we want to learn. If any, the only reason why some people don't want to learn is because learning has become so hard. There may be some difficulties in learning, and so they don't like learning very much. Um, but we enjoy learning about others. I would venture to say that every single person, at least in some fashion, enjoys learning. In heaven, then, we are going to continue to learn. Now, some people have would disagree with this because they take that passage in 1 Corinthians 13, 12 that says that we, or 11, that says that we know in part, but then we shall know fully as we are fully known. Now, he's not saying that our knowledge will be complete and full and that we will not be able to learn anything more because that word knowledge is the word epignosis, which is more a complete or relational knowledge. Even as God knows us, we will be in a full understanding in, in our relationship with him, okay? But as far as factual knowledge, that's not addressed there. If that's what he was addressing, I want you to imagine if we knew all things, what would that make us? Make us omniscient and would make us God. Even the angels are not omniscient. Satan himself is not omniscient. We ourselves in heaven will not be omniscient. If we don't know all things, then that means we have a capacity to learn more things. Think about this. If God has created this universe and created this world and he said to subdue it, that means you have to know about it and utilize it and to bring it under our mastery so that we can utilize it for the benefit of all, okay? That is that is the dominion mandate or the cultural mandate in Genesis chapter 1. Now, imagine this. If Jesus were to come back tomorrow, and right now, where we are at with science and understanding our world, I'm going to pick a number out of the year. We, we probably understand it, let's say, 10%. At best, 10%. When it comes to astronomy, far less than that. But we understand a decent amount, but we have yet to learn more. There are, there are sources of energy that we have yet to tap into and harness. Now, imagine then, if God renews the heavens, is he just renewing space? Or is he renewing the stars and the planets that are in that space? If you were to do a word study in what the heavens are, you would realize that the heavens that declare the glory of God is not just the empty space out there. It's the space that's been filled, that he filled, that he stretched out the heavens. It's the bodies, it's the stars, the planets, the comets, asteroids, what have you, that he has put out there. Why would he recreate that if they're just simply lovely little specks in the sky for us 
for all of eternity. I mean, this is something to ponder, and I'm going to speculate here. If we're going to continue to increase in our knowledge, would it not seem probable that at some point we would seek to explore them? Well, why not? And again, the only reason why we would say we wouldn't is because we believe that we are bound to the earth and cannot leave it, that that the... The, the purpose of heaven is simply to worship God, and we're going to find out that the purpose of heaven is to glorify him. That includes worship. That includes serving him. That includes utilizing everything. How do you glorify God today? Does that mean you have to worship him 24-7? Of course not. We glorify him in everything that we do, not just in our worship. Now, it's I'm not taking anything away from the importance and significance of worship. If anything, worship becomes more vital to us the more we fall in love with Jesus. If we have a problem with, with worship, if we are not enjoying it, it may be because we don't know how to worship, or it may be because we are distant in our relationship with Jesus Christ. But in heaven, knowing fully as we're fully known, in right, full, complete relationship with Jesus, we will love. Totally love worship. But that's not what we're going to do for all of eternity. There is so much more. So if we're increasing in our knowledge, would we not want to discover? Would we not want to invent? Now, I I think it's because we just have this limited view of the image of God that we're going to be so totally complete that we can't grow in our knowledge. And I don't see that anywhere in Scripture. Uh, how many of you enjoy learning, enjoy discovering, enjoy um, inventing, or anything along those lines? Okay, all right. And and I would just say everybody enjoys that because that is part of the image of God in us. God is a creator. He that is part of who He is, and that is in our DNA. That is who we are, being in the image of God. And if it's, and if we are in the image of God now in part and in the image of God in full, then would you not suppose that part of heaven is going to be us creating? Creating what? Well, it could be a number of things. Let, let me suggest to you another area to, to venture in, and that is this concept of the nations. You can look, turn with me if you would, to Revelation chapter 21. Actually, throughout Revelation, this phrase, the nations, is, is found throughout. It's, it's found. And it's found here in the New Jerusalem in verse 24. He says, the nations, not just simply the people, not just simply the all believers or all Christians or uh, everyone who, uh, whom the Lamb or whose name is found in the book of the Lamb, but it's very specific here, the nations. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. Interesting. What would be the kings and the nation that he has ruled over? What would be their splendor? Um, This concept of nations, which in the Greek is ethnos, we get the word ethnic from it, is rich with this concept of culture. Uh, What makes up a nation? And, And... I understand that uh, geopolitical boundaries help make up a nation, but it's far more than this, okay? What makes up a nation? A people group, okay? A people, yes, but what about a people group? Why is one nation different than another? Okay, so there's, there's culture. Now we're going to need to get into what culture is. Language, what else? 
Okay, how we communicate. Um, yes, but what makes up the difference in the nations? Skin color can make up a difference in the nations. Black people are going to be black in heaven, church. White people or relatively tanned people are going to be relatively tanned in heaven. Then my wife thinks we're, she's going to have a better tan. Okay, whatever. The truth is, these differences are part of our DNA. They're part of the, the image of God. And it's part of when this the Bible calls the ethnos or the nation or the nations in the plural. This is what he is getting at. The, the splendor and the glory that God created in the diversity of his creation, of the people that he's created. And over thousands of years, we are seeing more and more of this diversity. And when you compare the nation of China or the people group of China with the people group of Finland or Sweden or Scandinavian cultures, you see a vast difference. Black hair, blonde hair, unless you dye your hair, of course. Um, different hairstyles. Um, what else forms cultures in, in nations? Okay. I'm sorry? Traditions. Traditions. Okay, sure. Some nations celebrate certain like Christmas, Easter, and what have you, Lent. Uh, and other nations or cultures don't. Um, what else? Ancestry. Ancestry. What about ancestry? Okay, yeah, that, which is really what I'm getting at. What is that? Describe that for me. Um, okay, some nations, um, some nations are really big on storytelling and some are not. But these things that make up culture that distinguish one nation from another is their splendor and now how they have responded to the gospel, how they have entered into this dynamic relationship with Jesus Christ. This is what God glories in, and that's going to be part of heaven. Foods, music, art, sculpture, paintings, all kinds of things. things. Why would we not find ourselves creating these things since that is part of the image of God in us, part of what we are in our culture? God didn't do away with our culture. God, any more than God will do away with our memories. If God did away with our memories, who would you be? Brian, if your memory was wiped clean, who would you be? Are we not, isn't that really who we are, the sum total of our experiences and what those, how those experiences have affected us? That's who we are. And so if you wipe out all of your memories, who are you? You're a very different person. We're not going to have our memories wiped. There's no memory wipe machine that we go through as we enter into heaven. If you were to look at Isaiah 65, Isaiah 65, that, that's where Revelation 22 gets the, uh, the uh, every tear will be wiped away and such. Um, the sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. But it says right here, for the past troubles will be forgotten and hidden from my eyes. 
when it says the form, and then in the next verse it says, the former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. And I'm going to suggest to you that this absolutely does not mean that our former lives will be wiped clean so that there is no memory of it. What then is our salvation story? When the 144,000 in Revelation 14, and I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but in Revelation 14, it says that the 144,000 sing a song that no one else can learn. Does that mean that the rest of us are stupid? The rest of us, maybe they're singing in their own special language that we can't learn? Well, we all can learn languages, so why wouldn't we be able to learn this song? Um, now, is it because that they're the only ones that can carry a tune in the bucket and the rest of us will be tone deaf? Well, man, I don't think so. The 144,000 know this song because it is their personal testimony. And no one else shares in that personal testimony. It was only the generation that came out of Egypt that experienced the parting of the Red Sea, and the ten plagues. That is part of their story. Revelation 15, by the way, talks about Moses' song. Um, Exodus, uh, what was it, 15, is where we find something that's actually called the Song of Moses. But we, we have an experience in our life, and it's very personal. No one else really shares in that experience. My wife and I have been married for over 30 years and we've shared many experiences, but her testimony is very different than mine. Her life experiences, though there's much similarity because we've been together so many years, but it's still very different than mine. Her song, if you will, is different than my song. The 144,000 have experienced something in life and it's, and it's shared in their personal testimony that no one else will ever know as in experience. Okay, so I'm going to suggest to you that throughout eternity in the eternal state, we will always have our testimony. And our testimony includes the, the, the sin and the fact that we have been rescued from that sin. Now, what then does it mean that the former things will no longer be remembered, <clears throat> nor will they come to mind? Well, it says here, I'm starting to, I, I think I did read it, but at the uh, previous verse, it says, for the past troubles will be forgotten, hidden from my eyes. <clears throat> um, I don't know if that means specific sins and the shame of those sins will be just completely forgotten, or if it's just the impact of those sins that will be forgotten. Um the Bible says that God remembers, not only forgives, but remembers our sins no more. What does that mean? Does that mean that God... Us. Okay. So it wouldn't mean that God just, you know, kind of had a brain cloud and forgot the incidents in Mike's life. And, <clears throat> and that's why he has to refer to these books that tell the story of our life and no, it's because God chooses to not hold them against us. And even so, we, why not? We would be able to choose not to remember those things. Uh, so to some degree, we are going to remember this past life very well. But in some ways, the, the pains and the heartaches and all of those um to what degree they're absolutely dismissed, I don't know, but they will cause us pain no more.
okay. In in God's healing yes. of our hearts, sure. Well, but also like in childbirth, for instance, it's very painful for, while we're going through it. Okay. But once the child is here, we don't remember that pain. And the pain leading up to my back surgery was horrible. Most days it was a 10 out of 10. Mm. But since my surgery, I can't remember what that felt like. Okay. All right. And so God I has been gracious. Taste. <clears throat> okay. So I, I'm not going to be very definitive here, except to say God is not going to right wipe our memories clean. We're going to bring those memories, and those memories include experiences. Those memories include cultural elements. Those memories include, for Stephen, how he knows how to cook beef stroganoff. And so when I'm in heaven, I'm going to look him up. I'm going to knock on his door and I'm going to say, Stephen, let's share a meal, brother. You bake, you make beef stroganoff because that's one of my favorite veg, favorite dishes. I'm sorry. Well, sometimes the person who invents it invents it doesn't do the greatest job, but I have had your beef stroganoff and loved it. So I, I know for sure that if I go to your house, you're going to know how to make it just right. Um, now, this might sound a little facetious, but why why does it? Why how we cook foods? Now, I'm I'm not a cook, and and I can certainly learn. And this is going to be a possible. This is going to be a uh, a part of heaven learning. We're going to. Why wouldn't skilled musicians be able to increase in their skills and learn other instruments? I mean, Marla knows how to play. How many instruments do you know how to play? Like twenty, thirty, a lot. She knows how to play a lot of instruments, and and I can just see Marla picking up some instruments and to, from and asking someone from another culture. Teach me how to play this instrument. I want to learn how to play. And if we're not musically inclined, you know, maybe God will give us a love for music and we will all learn. But these are the possibilities, and it's rooted in this concept that, number one, we're made in the image of God, and that image will be in full then. And part of that image is this hunger for knowledge, this desire to create, this eye and love for beauty and aesthetics, that's not going to disappear. So why wouldn't we build? Why wouldn't we create? Why wouldn't we want to grow in our understanding of, of science? And that, I've just been considering that more recently. To what degree are, are the scientific laws that are in play in this age going to be in play in the next age? Did God, did God make a mistake when he invented these laws? And, and truly, church, we have discovered less, I'm, I'm guessing here, but I, I don't think we've discovered nearly even 10% of the laws and everything that's out there in the universe. Probably more so on Earth, but... There is so much out there. Wouldn't God want us to learn about these things? How many of you would be, if you've been a parent or, or um, can imagine what it would be like being a parent, if you bought 10 gifts for your child, you bought 10 gifts, and man, they were so, some of them were like incredible and you are just so creative in what you got. And you know that when they open those gifts, they are going to be so excited. But they open only one of those ten gifts. 
and choose not to open anymore. How would you feel? Yeah. It's like, no, no, no. I want you to open all of them. Why wouldn't God want the same for us in understanding his creation? Why did he create it with such intricacy? If not for us to discover and utilize, that is the very purpose for him creating these things. It's for us to have dominion over. Why does that suddenly come to an end at the end of this creation? How is it that, I mean, is it sinful? Well, no, God gave us a dominion mandate before the fall. Why would, not, why would that not continue into all of eternity? Do you see the possibilities with regard to um, these types of things? Beauty and creating, um, building buildings. Why wouldn't we be involved in building buildings? If that's, if that's inbred in us, what has man done he has built buildings, and he has built buildings close to one another. He, we're relational, and so we build together. We work together. We're not just single units trying to work. The amount of work that one person does is multiplied when there are two people, not just by two. Um, I, I, I was forgive me. I, I don't have the exact statistics, but there was a uh, a horse pulling contest that was done that I was reading a book that this author was talking about. I don't remember the exact amounts, but one horse pulled, I think it was, and I'm kind of guessing here, forgive me, but like 9,000 pounds, and the second place horse pulled 8,000 pounds. And they wanted to know, well, how much could they pull together? Would they pull 9 plus 7, 16? Would they pull 16,000 pounds? They pulled over twenty-two or 24,000 pounds together. You know, so this is what is, when, when man works together, that they can accomplish. So when we're in heaven, why wouldn't we build buildings together? Why wouldn't we work together? And this concept of work is going to be in heaven. Work is not just a, an English four-letter word, okay? You follow what I'm saying here. We are not, heaven is not going to be one perpetual vacation. How many of you know people who have retired and just found, found retirement to be so boring? Yeah, my neighbor in, behind me, he retired. He got so bored, he went back to work. Yeah, that's just been, God created us for work. He didn't create us for simply leisure. Leisure needs to be a part of what we do. So leisure, recreation is going to be a part of heaven. Sports. Why wouldn't we have sports in heaven? I want to throw that out to you. Well, Give me some feedback on there. Why wouldn't we have sports in heaven? Talk about that. Okay, and what sports would we probably not have in heaven and why? Fighting. Okay, boxing. Yeah, I can see that we probably wouldn't need to have that. Is there not something in our spirit, in our DNA, our image of God that is competitive. Yeah, we like competition. All right. When does, listen to this, when does competition become wrong? Okay. When it becomes about selfish ambition, when it becomes all about me, promoting me, lifting me up, pride, uh, these types of things, or when we feel that if we lose in a competition, it makes us feel bad, it makes us feel like losers, makes us feel um, that somehow we're not enough, okay? 
all of that that God wants to remove. You know, I used to be heavily involved in sports when I was a young guy. And I've forgotten what it was like. It's been so long, in fact. But now when I do competitive sports, and honestly, I haven't done competitive sports in a couple of years, but when I did, out on the soccer field with the young people in the church on Sunday afternoons playing soccer, touch football or whatever, um, I had a great time. I was competitive. Um, I would be very sarcastic on the field, but I would poke fun at people, and we would have we would have a total blast, uh, just ribbing one another and enjoying and, and having fun, and, and okay, sometimes making fools of ourselves. But it was a total blast. There was no competition. I mean, if my team lost, okay, guys, well, we'll we'll bury their faces in the mud next week, okay, and. <laughs> That we, we, we just had a great time. So I'm, I'm suggesting to you that this idea of competition, whether it's in business, whether it's in sports, why would that be suddenly gone in heaven? And, and, unless we think that sports is sin or that competition is wrong. No, sin has distorted that with selfish ambition, yes, but when that's extracted... God, God wired us for recreational activities. God wired us to compete with one another. And that competition, again, does not have to be rooted in sin or, or selfish ambition. So I'm going to suggest that these are things that we're going to find in heaven. Why wouldn't we? Okay. Yeah. Commerce will be in heaven. Commerce. Uh, someone just asked me that question today. And I would say, why wouldn't there be? Now, we're going to get to that idea of work in just a moment. But first, let me tell you a little story. Um, <clears throat> and I don't know if this is true, and I don't know where Tom Brady stands in any kind of relationship with Jesus Christ. I truly don't. So, I, you know, this is what I've heard. But uh, that Tom Brady uh, apparently had a dream, and he had died, and he went to heaven. Okay? And St. Peter was saying, okay, Tom, this is your home. And it was a very modest cottagey, quaint type of home. And he looked across the street and there was this absolutely huge palatial mansion. And in the very front, there was a flagpole and it was waving a Denver Broncos <laughs> logo. He saw in the backyard through this incredible fence, he saw a, a Broncos styled or shaped pool. Um, the front door was totally decorated in Denver Broncos. And everything about it was Denver Broncos. And, and he immediately, Tom says, wait a minute, St. Peter, I don't get it. I mean, I've, I love the Lord and I have done, I've, I've, I've earned more Super Bowls than, than, uh, than Tim Tebow or anything like this. And I just don't understand why do I get this small little house and Tim Tebow gets this huge mansion. And St. Peter says, oh, that's not Tim Tebow's house. That's where Jesus lives. <laughs> yeah, okay. <clears throat> but I, I personally think that friendly competition uh, and sports and such is going to be a part of heaven. Um, why not? Um, yes, question so, Yeah, what about like communion units? So like, I mean, obviously there's not marriage in heaven, so we're going to okay. be in our homes by ourselves. But like, our community what, units... Did you say we will be in our homes by ourselves? I don't know. Like, that's oh, okay. Question. Like, 
The Bible doesn't answer that. Right. But. And then, like, also, are we going to live in community units? Like, how many churches, one community over here, and then there's a community over here, or, like, do The Bible truly doesn't touch on this. So it, it, it touches on these principles of relationships, and I'm suggesting then those relationships would mean that we would build together. The city of Jerusalem is not a bunch of little tiny homes separated by, a, you know, each home gets a few acres. You know, that's not the new Jerusalem, but it, it, it describes the people of God as 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles, streets of gold, um, names on the gates and the foundations. And it truly, in that way, it describes the church Um it describes the church, though, as a city. To me, that says communion. It says relationship. It says unity. Um, and I'm not saying that we would not have a second or a third home or something like this. Um, maybe that would maybe that would be the case. Um, what I'm trying to do, of course, is move away from this concept of the eternal state being boring. It will be anything but boring. Why wouldn't we be able to enjoy the sunrise? Now, the Bible does say that there will be no need for the sun or the moon because God will be its light. But because there's no need for it does not necessarily mean there won't be. Okay? When God remakes the heavens, why wouldn't the sun and the moon be a part of that? Now, there will not be any darkness, but describe darkness for me. Does that mean that it's blinding light everywhere? What's the, what's the uh, light contrast or brightness in heaven? Will it always be the same? Will there be a difference in that brightness? And so that when it's not as bright, we could call that night? Why would God, here's where I'm going with this, why would God create a heavens so that when you look up into the sky during the day, you cannot see those stars? If we only experience day, then we would never be able to see the stars. Now, I'm, I'm going by what we understand day and night to be. And I'm suggesting that the day and night then will just be very different in that respect. Okay. Um, it also says that there will be no sea. Now, what is a sea? Water. Water. What else? Salt. Very large, generally speaking. If you were to look at a map on the Great Lakes, um, they're huge compared to any other lake in America. Um, to my knowledge, they're all freshwater, right? I just want to double check on that, right? Yes. Um, they do have waves. So the moon does affect those bodies of water. Um, but when you stand on one shore, and I've, I've not been there, Cole, you've been there, Michigan. When you're standing on the, what's the largest lake? Of the, lake Superior. When you're standing on one shore of Lake Superior, can you see the other shore? No. Okay. Okay. Um, I'm just expressing my ignorance here right now. Um, what's wrong with a fresh body of water being very large, but just not salty? What do you call that? Do you call it a sea? You call it a lake. Do you not? Yes. 
or a large body of water, or let's name it something else. But they, in, at least in Michigan, Wisconsin, that area, they, Pennsylvania, they call them the Great Lakes. So they're lakes because they're fresh water. Now, the idea, though, of a sea has some, has some symbolism, especially in the book of Revelation. It's out of the sea that the, uh, that the beast comes, and that sea represents uh, evil and such. It's out of the sea that Daniel 7, the four beasts, come out of. Okay, The false prophet, though, it does say he comes out of the earth. So you can contrast what does it mean to come out of the sea? What does it mean to come out of the earth? The beast is also said to come out of the abyss. So these are th things to uh, consider, but I'm suggesting to you that the reason why Scripture says there's no sea is because that's just not what you call a fresh water body. Okay, And in Ezekiel 47... It's, it's interesting, it says, wherever this river that flows from the south side of the temple goes, it makes the water fresh. What is it about fresh water then, rather than salty? You can't drink salty water, you can drink fresh water. Um, and it says that the fish in that fresh water is just as large as the fish in the Mediterranean, the Great Sea. Um, I'm not saying that this is a picture of the, the earth then, Though there is some symbolism that's drawn, such as the trees that bears fruit in every season and heals the nations, we do see that in Ezekiel 47 and Revelation 22. Um, but I do believe that that picture of the water flowing from the south side of the temple into the Dead Sea, making everything alive, is a picture of this life um, and maybe a foretaste of what the next life will be, but it's fresh water. As a matter of fact, the King James doesn't use the word fresh, it uses the word the waters are healed. Interesting. So I'm going to suggest that it's just going to be a fresh body of water because when God created the earth, he created it with water, did he not? Okay? And, well, we, we don't know. We don't know if it was salt water or not. It's very possible that at the flood... The, the waters of the seas became salt. I, I don't know the science behind that, so I'm, I'm kind of shooting from the hip with that. But the, the, the truth is that God created these large bodies of water. He did call them seas. Um, the nature of those seas may change in the new earth, but these are suggestions, okay? Um, I'm going to suggest that there will be a sun and a moon or something similar to them, um, that even though there will be no darkness, there will be some shift of day and evening. Um, it may not be as dark, we don't know, but something about it will allow us to see the stars. Why? I, I would imagine that we would. I'm not convinced that when you remove decay that, the, that sin brought into the world, that that removes the need for rest. I think Adam and Eve needed rest. God himself rested on the seventh day, not because he was exhausted, mind you, so that's different. But the Bible does not say that our resurrection bodies won't tire. It just says that they won't die. Okay? It's even possible that we can build stamina and things like this. Okay? I, I, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to stretch our understanding that has, in America, 
and, and I'm going to venture to say throughout the world in our day, but it has become so narrow in how we understand the eternal state. When it comes to the resurrection body, yeah, things like, will we tire? Well, why, why wouldn't we? It's just that our body will not um, go through what's called entropy. It will not um, tend towards decay. Romans 8 says God's going to get rid of that. The universe tends towards decay, and it uses this term of frustration. And that's going to be gone. That doesn't mean we won't be able to get tired. So. I would suggest that we will. What is, in, in what is it, Isaiah 35? I'm trying to remember the exact chapter. It, it's a very clear picture of heaven, and it talks about foods. The question, though, is would we eat meat? Yes! I don't know. Because to eat meat means that an animal has to be killed. And I don't know if God is going to have us kill an animal because they're living creatures. And that is something that I struggle with, and it's not because I'm an animal rights activist, blah, blah, blah. Uh, though I do believe in caring for the animals God gives you, the question, though, is will there be death of animals? Okay? And that, I, I don't know for sure. So, um, maybe some theologians out there have really plumbed the depths of that one, and they would say, well, Mike, it says there in Isaiah 35, we will, so of course we will. Um, so anyways, it's, it's certainly possible. I'm, I'm kind of hoping that we will be able to eat meat. I just don't know how that's going to work out. Yeah. Okay. And that is what Randy Alcorn suggests because Randy Alcorn falls, Alcorn falls in his 500 page book on called, entitled heaven. Uh, he falls on that side where he says there won't be meat, but there will be things that will taste just like meat like because... <laughs> so anyways, um, it's going to, everything will be for our enjoyment. And again, this is not hedonistic heaven. That, that's not what I'm getting at. Uh, pleasure becomes wrong when it embodies selfishness in, in, in which we, it, it's all about me. That's where pleasure becomes wrong. Okay. And obviously, that is not sin is not going to be in heaven. That that type of selfishness will not be present, and so we're not talking about hedonism here. Um, but we will be talking. We, we will be at work. And how do we know that we will be at work? And it's because number one is we go back to Revelation. Excuse me, Genesis chapter two. Um, one of the things is that God created Eden. Heaven is going to be paradise restored. And God gave Adam a job to do. Yeah. He worked. The curse was not work. The curse was work that was frustrating, whatever that would look like. Maybe you get frustrated at work because you have to deal with sinful people, including your own sin. Okay. Um, maybe work becomes frustrating with to you because it is monotonous. It is the same thing over and over and over. Again, I'm not saying that there will not, we will not be doing uh, some things over and over repetitiously, but if that is the case, we will love whatever we do. Again, remember, God created us to enjoy things. Why can't God 
tweak that enjoyment factor in us so that, man, though we hated broccoli on earth, we love it in heaven, okay? Yeah, you, you follow what I'm saying here, don't you? Um, but I do believe that there will be tremendous variety. I think that there's something in us that likes repetition, but we can get bored with it. So I also believe that even though there may be some things that are repetitious in heaven, there will be tremendous change. Okay, change. Diversity. Um, so... Food. Anyway, yes, I do believe that we will be eating in heaven. I do believe that we will be drinking in heaven. Um, the the wedding supper of the Lamb is not just a picture that we get to look at. It is real things that we will consume. When Jesus is speaking to his disciples, he says that I confer on you a kingdom. And uh, I'm trying to remember how he words it there exactly in Luke 22. And he's, he says that um, we will eat and drink in the future kingdom. I'm paraphrasing there. So Jesus himself said that we will, he looks forward to that time when he eats and drinks with his apostles in the new kingdom. Then he talks about them sitting on thrones, judging 12 tribes of Israel. And so we know that that is the eternal state and not the intermediate state. Okay, now turn with me to Matthew, if you will, Matthew chapter 24. Um, I want us to look at this parable of the talents. That is a parable that suggests a number of things. We need to be careful as we interpret it, because remember, a parable is a human story that has spiritual truths, that teach spiritual truths. The natural or human elements here in this parable of the talents is that there is a master and there is there are servants. And in that context, the servants have responsibilities. That's the nature of being a servant. You have responsibilities. Specifically with the parable of the ten minas, which is very similar to this parable, though it's found in Luke, <clears throat> the reward... It's not just simply, I'm going to put you in charge of many things, as the parable of the talent speaks of, but I'm going to put you in charge of ten cities. Now, for a servant, that makes a lot of sense. Maybe he was in charge of some aspects of the palace, and now because he's been so faithful, he was faithful with what he was given. So now he's going to be faithful in much. That much would be not just a palace, but overseeing 10 cities. But he says, you will be put in charge of 10 cities. We use that, that same phrasing as is found here. I will put you in charge of many things. That means I will put you over. That's the epi, that Greek word there means over. So NIV translates it in charge of, but we're going to be placed over. That is given responsibility and authority. Responsibility and authority go hand in glove. You can't have responsibility with no authority. And you can't have authority with no responsibility. There's, no, there's nothing to do. So responsibility and authority go hand in glove. So when it says you're going to be placed over many things, that communicates authority and it communicates responsibility. Now, whatever those many things are, at least it doesn't say here. 
Um, he doesn't elaborate on it. So the takeaway here is that, number one, we will work. Why work was not the curse. It was the frustration and the difficulty, the weeds, um, that would spoil the work. It was working with sinful people. Work is what we were wired for. Work is what we were created for. Serving God with this work here on earth. We're going to have work in heaven. We're going to have responsibility and therefore authority in heaven. In various, various realms. Okay? My children have a bedroom and they have responsibilities and therefore authority in their bedroom. I can always trump that authority though. And I'm the dad. But they have responsibilities. They have authority. Okay? Sometimes their responsibilities when we had cats was to take care of the cats. And therefore they had authority within that realm. Okay? So work, responsibility, authority, is what we will be given in the, the new heavens, the new earth. Um, let me just quickly go through my, uh, my notes here because I know that there was a lot that uh, I needed to cover. Um, before I conclude this evening, does anybody have a question or a comment? Before I conclude, I do want to say this because this has honestly been one of my disappointments concerning heaven, and it says that there will be no marriage. Um, I find that difficult to grasp and understand. And all I can say is that the relationships, the depth that we experience in intimacy with regard to a marriage, minus the sexual elements of it, that intimacy, that closeness, is, is something that we will be able to experience. And, and I would venture to say even beyond that. And, and again, we were created as sexual beings, and that's why sex is something in the context of marriage is enjoyed. But again... In our resurrected bodies, we will find tremendous pleasure in some things that here on earth we didn't. Okay? And, and, and again, concerning sexual relationships, it is both enjoyable, pleasurable, but it also builds intimacy. We will have that intimacy, but in the sexual realm... There, it's it's the, the chemical reactions and such in our bodies that make us enjoy the the sexual activity in marriage. Uh, again, God is the the author of our bodies and our resurrected body, and enjoying a vast array of of things. And I imagine that we're going to enjoy more things in the the world to come than we do here on earth. 
the the sexual element, I'm going to just say this, will not be missed because of how God will recreate us to enjoy so much so that we can experience that intimacy that we found in marriage, but even more. Okay? So, um, what would, did you remember your question? A candlelight dinner with Jesus. Just you and Jesus. I can't answer that question because I don't know. We have eternity. I know, isn't that exciting? That is exciting. It's just so personal. Yeah. And I have another question. Let me just conclude in saying this. There is so much about heaven that we have not even discussed here this evening. And we've discussed a lot, whether you're aware of it or not. We have discussed a lot tonight. Um, I believe that God truly wants us to look so forward to heaven that it motivates us. It doesn't distract us. Maybe if he shared more about heaven, it would distract us. But he shared what he did enough so that it motivates us. Because I do believe that how we live in this life, we need to have one eye on this life and one eye on the life to come. And that eye on the life to come is not a yearning for heaven so that we fail in our responsibilities on earth, rather that it heightens our desire to be found faithful in our responsibilities here on earth. Um, so that we so look forward to heaven that people like Isaac Asimov would have no ground whatsoever to feel negative about heaven that is somehow going to be so incredibly boring that it's going to be worse than hell. Uh, where did he get that idea? It, it had to have come from the church. It didn't come from the Bible, but it came from people's misunderstandings of the Bible. And I'm not even going to say it just came from his misunderstanding of the Bible. Because it, he should, just like anybody be able to walk into a church and when he hears a sermon on heaven, there should be something that tugs in his heart that says, man, I would love to have that. But I can't because I don't even believe there's a God or an afterlife. So there should be something that would tug at his heart and, and at least inquire about it. But if there's not, Isaac, people like Isaac Asimov, an atheist, he is far too content to live only for this life and not believe in a life after, because, oh my goodness, it would be so boring. So, I, I think that our appetites, through studying scriptures like we have tonight, and, and exploring the possibilities, and, and, and not just possibilities, but I truly believe these are implications. The restoration of the image of God has tremendous implications concerning creating and building and inventing and growing in knowledge and we're not omniscient, sure. So of course we're going to grow in knowledge. And, and, and there are books in heaven. The book of life is, there's books in heaven. So why can't we write books? Why can't we read books? Uh, again, let, we need to stop limiting ourselves with the stinking thinking that makes heaven so boring and tasteless. Heaven is going to be the most exciting thing that you could ever, ever imagine in this life. So 
Let it motivate you. Let it let it cry out within you to call people into this relationship with Jesus that will last into eternity. That they will be able to experience heaven on earth. And that it's something that they would so totally, completely look forward to. Let me close in prayer. Father, I want to thank you for the realities of heaven and that life to come, that new age, that age in which this old life is done away with and everything is restored. I ask, Father, that we would not only look forward to it, but, Father, it would so motivate us in how we spend our time in this these few years that you give us. They are a drop in the bucket compared to eternity. That we would be willing in this life to sacrifice whatever we need rather than because of a misunderstanding of how boring would heaven be to somehow want to enjoy as much of this life as we can at the expense of eternity. God, get rid of that thinking in the church. May heaven motivate us. May spending eternity with you Trigger something in our hearts and says, I am going to live for Jesus regardless of the sacrifice, regardless of what I have to lay aside. I am pursuing Jesus because this life is nothing compared to that life ahead. This life is a foretaste. This, that eternity depends on what I do with these few years here on earth. So God, motivate us and inspire us and challenge us to live totally for you in these years you give us, in Christ's name, amen.